That HB6 filing by the feds last week continues to yield great stories. We had a couple of additional ones yesterday, and we'll be talking about the issue again on this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn, here with my colleagues Jane Cahoon, Layla Tassi, and Laura Johnston. It's a Tuesday in Cleveland, and we got lots of news, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Hot day yeah. in Cleveland. <laughs> it's going to be in five today. Not looking forward to that. Let's begin. What should students and their parents expect at back-to-school time in Ohio this autumn? Leila Tassi, I'm steering this question to you because you're dealing with it. That's right, and I feel passionately about aspects of this. The Ohio Department of Health on Monday announced that its recommendations for K-12 through will be for unvaccinated children to wear masks and return for full-time in-person learning. The guidance includes that unvaccinated staff also wear masks indoors, that heating, air conditioning, and ventilation systems be regularly maintained, that schools encourage proper hand washing, you know, all the stuff that we've gotten really used to, and that children are kept three to six feet apart. State officials will encourage schools to have as many outdoor learning activities as possible. And of course, if a district is in an area where transmission of the virus is high, they can add more layers of protection. But but really, the key to this is the in-person learning aspect, which we know how much our kids all suffered with the remote learning model last year. Oh, I still get cold sweats when I think about it. <laughs> but it's, it's important to note that the masking is not a mandate here. It's just a recommendation. And, and when Mike DeWine was asked why that is, he said, we're going to continue to put information out there, but we're at a point where these decisions must be left to a local community. They must be left to parents. That Those were his words. But here's my question about that. What happened to the idea that when you wear a mask, you're doing it to protect others? I wear one to prevent you from getting sick and vice versa. I mean, if we're now saying, well, it's up to parents to decide, how is that fair or even logical? My kid will be wearing a mask to protect your kid, and you're allowed to send a kid to school without a mask and just disregard the safety of his or her classmates? I mean, did I miss a step in this argument here? I, this is This is so troubling to me because I've seen... The Facebook pages for, you know, my local group of crazy parents who vehemently pr protest the use of masks. Most of these folks are anti-vaxxers, too. So that means that their kids are most likely living with adults who aren't vaccinated and frankly could be vectors of disease. And these kids get to show up to school without a mask. I mean, man, I hope school districts make the right decision here until kids are eligible for the vaccine. But I, I really am not. Uh, my faith is waning on that because they're feeling so much pressure to leave it up to parents to choose. And in my district, I, I've heard numerous parents talking about how they're saving a spot in private school for their kids while they wait to see what the masking policy will be in the public schools. And they'll put their kids, you know, pull their kids from public school if they have to wear a mask. I'm just so troubled by, wow, by all really? of this. You know, yeah, yeah. I, I, I never bought the idea that you wore the mask to protect others. I mean, you remember the whole mask thing, public health officials flat out lied. They started the pandemic by saying masks don't, are not useful, which we threw the flag right away saying that can't be true. Then they came out and said, OK, they're useful to protect others from you, which we didn't buy either. I always thought the mask was there to protect you. That's why people wear them. Uh, and they ultimately said, yes, the masks protect the wearer. Um, so I'm not sure how much danger there is. What what you are seeing now is a discussion on when you send your kids to school, they should be wearing the N95 mask, that that the variant is so contagious that to fully protect themselves, they need that form-fitting mask, not the, the, the rectangle of, 
of um, stuff that, that wraps around their ears. Uh, so I imagine that they're available again. They hadn't been available in the beginning. Laura Johnston, what are you thinking about this? You're sending two kids back to school soon, too. I am. Um, less than a month now. And originally, Rocky River was one of the few uh, school districts that talked to Hannah Drown when she called around our reporter, Hannah, and they said, we're not going to make kids wear masks this fall. And I think that a lot of districts are going to be reconsidering that decision. And I agree with Layla that I, I feel like it should be a policy from the district. I don't think it should be a decision from a parent that doesn't seem super fair to everybody in the school. So I hope that they do require masks this fall, because when you're talking about unvaccinated kids, you are talking about every kid from K through fifth grade. Like, right. <laughs> and I think that the majority in the middle school years are not getting vaccinated either. I, I, I should check those stats, but from what I, anecdotally, it doesn't seem like everybody's rushing to get a shot when they turn 12. So, um, yeah, it's going to be interesting. And I believe, I, I think we're going to see some heated board meetings before school starts. Because if you had asked me in May, maybe not May, if you had asked me in June, I would have said, okay, I think I think it'll be okay. My kids went to summer school without masks. But now with the Delta variant, I I, I can't say the same thing. Yeah, remember that the, the Delta variant is flourishing in the summer when the virus is more likely to go dormant. And so as the weather turns cold, you could see real serious outbreaks. And again, kids, they're not vaccinated. That's where the the spread could be. I, I don't think we've heard the end of this no. argument. I think it'll continue to evolve all the way probably till Christmas. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What is the impact on Ohio by the Department of Veterans Affairs decision to make the coronavirus vaccine mandatory for its health care employees? Laura Johnston, this is the first federal agency to do something like this, the first employer that really is enforcing this. I wonder if this is the beginning of a, a series of dominoes where employers start saying their employees must get it. But for the VA, we got a whole bunch of them here. Absolutely. It's bigger than I thought. And this is the first Northeast Ohio health system that is requiring its employees to be vaccinated. So this is all healthcare personnel who work there. It affects 11,000, sorry, 111,000 veterans across Northeast Ohio get care through the VA. It's 18 locations, including 13 outpatient clinics and about 5,500 employees. Those are you know, doctors, dentists, podiatrists, optometrists, nurses, all sorts of people. And the idea is pretty simple. They want to keep their patients safe. The VA has actually lost four employees to COVID-19, all who have were unvaccinated. At least three of those were from the Delta variant. So that's pretty recent. They're on their third outbreak of COVID with unvaccinated employees and trainees at the VA Law Enforcement Training Center. So they are seeing this really grow pretty rampantly. And the the promise they want to make is when someone sets foot in a VA facility, they deserve to know we've done everything in our power to protect them from COVID-19. So these folks have eight weeks to be fully vaccinated. So we know there's a three-week gap between those two and two weeks on the other end. So these people got to get vaccinated pretty quickly. Yeah, I, I just wonder if we're going to see employers doing this in mass. You know, we were talking before the podcast that, that Layla is very concerned about her children. And if she comes into the workplace and we have people who aren't vaccinated there, even though Layla is fully vaccinated, she could bring home the Delta variant to her unvaccinated children. And I don't think any employer wants to be responsible for that. So I, it'll be fascinating to watch the decisions made as we get closer to the end of summer, everybody's put this off, right? Everybody's like, let's get through the summer. Let's get to Labor Day. 
but it'll be interesting to see what happens as we reach that and the Delta variant continues to spread. I, I, I'm betting, Layla, that you really don't want to be in an office with unvaccinated people, right? No, and I will continue wearing a mask, FYI, because I don't, I don't trust any of you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, then. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What was disgraced former House Speaker Larry Householder's secret plan to subvert the will of the voters of Ohio to preserve the billion-dollar-plus bailouts for First Energy, the bailouts that he forged in the state's biggest-ever bribery scandal? Jane Cahoon, this is a story that popped out of that great federal filing last week in uh, in the HB6 corruption case. And it's amazing <laughs> the lengths this guy went to to preserve his gifts to First Energy. Yeah, just another little nugget here in these documents. It's like the gift that keeps on giving, right? But uh, so the, as you said, these documents were released as part of First Energy's deferred prosecution agreement with federal authorities. And it's they show that you know, it, it seems like if the House Bill 6 opponents had been successful in getting their repeal campaign to the ballot, that Householder was prepared to squash it by by simply passing legislation declaring that House Bill 6 was a billion dollar tax as opposed to <laughs> what it was. Uh, and, and under Ohio law, a tax is excuse me, is not subject to a referendum. So assuming the allegations in these documents are true, it would really show the extent to which corruption completely ruled over Republican principles like no new taxes, right? A billion dollar tax. I mean, uh, but the, the, this never did come to pass because because Householder and the pro House Bill 6 forces were able to just crush this signature gathering effort uh, through other tactics like paying companies to, you know, hire competing signature gathering firms to stay out of Ohio and and hiring petition blockers who followed the signature gatherers around. And then all those millions they spent on misleading ads saying, if you sign a petition, you know, your personal information is going to be shared with the Chinese communist government, things like that. So so the people, you know, running that repeal campaign ended up missing their their deadline to to make the ballot. So so that just, you know, he never had to pull out the uh, the big tax uh, plan. Well, remember, there was $60 million in bribes that, that fueled all of this. I, I mean, I, I'm just astounded because the campaign to stop the petition gatherers was horrific. Remember the red China ads? They tried to make you believe that these petition gatherers were actually trying to to help. You know, they were actually red. The postcards right. you got were red. I mean, it was like, right. and, and they used thuggery. I mean, they, there was actual physical confrontations right. about, with the signature gatherers. With the petition blockers, yeah. The work done to stop the will of the people to uh, to affect their government. I mean, people recognized from the start there was something wrong with HB6. Previously, John Kasich and the other legislatures didn't, didn't go that way. First Energy kept asking. Then Mike DeWine, John Houston, and and Larry Halsorder come into office and they welcome it with open arms <laughs> and the <laughs> corruption goes on. And when people, basic people stand up and say, wait, this stinks. We need to have the voters overturn it. They, they put all that effort into killing it. And then even if they, that, that had been successful, they would have declared it a tax and tried to, to stop it. That would have led to a Supreme Court case because I don't think the Supreme Court would have gone along yeah. with that. 
You know, interestingly, I mean, it's not the first time we heard about this tax thing. Uh, at one point, First Energy Solutions, which was the former name of the former First Energy subsidiary that owns the two nuclear plants, uh, they had actually filed a lawsuit in the Ohio Supreme Court arguing that this bailout was was a tax that couldn't be repealed. Um, that was during the whole, you know, signature gathering effort and, and so forth. So that later got dropped, you know, when the repeal campaign failed. But but they, you know, themselves uh, tried to raise the issue in court. This thing astounds. I mean, we've seen crooked people in office before, but this this one, this is the most <laughs> egregious kind of co-opting of government I've ever I mean, and totally, like, as I said, everything Republicans stand for, you know, anti-tax, you know, he apparently was totally willing to just, you know, abandon that principle and say, yeah, this is a billion dollar tax. At First Energy is just such a crooked company in this thing. Okay, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. What have we learned so far in the criminal title of Cleveland City Councilman Ken Johnson? There you go, Laura. I didn't say Johnston. <laughs> Leila Tassi, I'm switching it up. This is a big one. I don't want to miss getting to this. There's been a lot of revelations in this trial. Yeah. Yesterday, there were some big ones. That's right. Yeah. So Johnson, uh, who who's on trial with his longtime aide, Garnell Jamison, is facing 15 federal charges. That includes two counts of conspiracy to commit theft from a federal program, aiding and assisting in the preparation of false tax returns, tampering with a witness and falsifying records during a federal investigation. So prosecutors have accused him of taking more than $127,000 from the city in the form of council reimbursements for work that was never done. A longtime Cleveland recreation worker Robert Fitzpatrick testified last week that he signed years of city timesheets for work he didn't do for Johnson between 2010 and 2018. And that allowed Johnson to claim the maximum $1,200 a month for reimbursements for, for work that was supposed to be done in the ward. But the money instead went into Johnson's bank account, the prosecutor said. And Fitzpatrick, he backed that up with his testimony. He said that while Johnson was raking in that city money based on his falsified reports, Fitzpatrick had to had to pay the taxes on it. Oh, that's so that's cold. And uh, so and John Hopkins, the former executive director of the Buckeye Shaker Square Economic Development Corporation, told the jury that his agency was struggling financially. But Johnson forced him to keep three of his own family members on the payroll on this grounds crew that that did landscaping around the ward. And they ended up collecting $100,000 worth of federal block grant funding, just those three, illegally, you know, steered toward them. And then Johnson's own son, Ken Johnson Jr., testified that indeed his dad, not the younger Johnson, signed his paychecks from the CDC, even when he was out of town working for a trucking company. And about $50,000 of that money ended up in Councilman Johnson's bank account. And then... An accountant for a private firm that was hired briefly to do accounting for uh, the CDC said that the CDC was bending over backwards to keep those three on the payroll, sometimes pilfering from other funds that covered the mortgages and other expenses for low-income housing that the CDC owned. And then <laughs> prosecutors attacked Johnson's taxes as witnesses testified that he overinflated his deductions. There was a tax preparer who said that uh, that Johnson included pages of gifts to charities and job expenses on his tax forms from 2014 to 2018. And the deductions also included $14,400 for an item called delivery services pertaining to his work as a, a member of the council. 
And then there were two vehicles that he donated to Our Lady of the Wayside. This is my favorite part. This is is my favorite part. So he estimated that one uh, 1975 Buick LeSabre was valued at $36,000 and the other one he valued at 43000 Well, it turns out that these were a couple of beaters valued at $1,200 each, according to the nonprofit. So just really fascinating, brazen stuff right. that he's a accused 19, of doing. A 1975 Buick worth $35,000. <laughs> the, the thing that the, the, the real audacity, though, is he's collecting reimbursement for his expenses and yet deducting the expenses as if he weren't. I mean, that, that you just, I don't get why he didn't make a deal. He is dead in the water. There is no right. way he comes out of this without being convicted. This is, I mean, and, and his defense attorney is putting up the, the lamest of, of defense. It's like, you know, one of it was they were looking at appliances that went into the rec center six years ago and the city went in or the feds went in, they looked and they said, this stuff looked ancient. And the, and the defense attorney says, well, in a rec center, it gets beat up quickly. <laughs> it's like, Come on, man. This is, you, you can't claim a 1975 Buick is worth $35,000 and think you're going to get away with it. Um, I, I wondered all along whether he was going to pull something out of his hat that, that would defeat the government case. But I'm not seeing it. And it actually is way worse than than we thought. Mark Namick had revealed a lot of, of the expense abuses in a series of stories a couple of years ago when he was in our newsroom. But what we're learning now is beyond that, the car stuff and the tax things. So I don't, I don't see it. I don't, I don't see how I know. I, I don't understand why he didn't take a plea deal either. And, and I mean, in, in another astounding uh, display of hubris, he's running for council again. <laughs> so, yeah, I know. And well. he could win. So, he he could win, but oh if he gets convicted, God. he he won't be able to be a council person. the The prosecution's going to wrap up today, right? Yeah, I That's, think so. Yeah. I think they said today Tuesday is the last day of testimony. Okay, yep. you're listening to this week in the CLE. Who are the real Cleveland Guardians? Laura Jensen, we touched on this a little bit yesterday, but this is a fascinating story because the Cleveland Guardians was supposed to be the baseball team. But it's a bunch of guys that go around in roller skates. What's the deal? <laughs> well, apparently it's both. Um, the, they're a men's travel roller derby team that's been around for a few years. And we didn't know they existed, but obviously they did. And they have a website. And social media started blowing up over them, wondering how the Indians couldn't have known or why they didn't own the domain name to Cleveland Darty clevelandguardians.com and what was going on in this trademark. So Bob Higgs who has reported on the trademark process before with the Indians and kind of who was squatting on a couple of names that were front runners. He called the team, both teams. They didn't get back to him, but talked to some experts who weren't overly concerned. They believe there's probably a deal between the team and the roller derby folks that allows them to have that name. We just don't know about it yet. Yeah, it's just strange they wouldn't have addressed that right, right. up front. Another right. Cleveland sport team that none of us have ever heard of. Yeah, we wondered at first, was this a scam? Did they quickly throw to together? But it's not. They've been playing no. for years. This is something that is bona fide and has been out there. Uh, I, I'm a little bit surprised the Indians didn't get back right away to, to address it. I was surprised that Bob talked to a lawyer who said it might not be a problem because I thought with trademark law, you know, if, if the Cleveland Guardians was the name of a perfume – 
okay, that, that's a different sector, but it's a sports team. I mean, how do you have two sports teams well, called the Cleveland Guardians? And their view, the experts' view, was that you're not going to mix up like an amateur roller derby team with a major league baseball team. That people, there, there is no confusion in the marketplace, which is the point of trademarks. But there, I mean, there's stuff we just don't know yet. Apparently, a group called Bryant Street Sports LLC of New York had sought a trademark protection for the name Cleveland Guardians in 2020. It was probably back when everybody started talking about possibilities and it was like the crow hoppers and the spiders the indians objected to that application this month when the public comment period opened and the filing was withdrawn july 21st so that was just a few days ago okay it'll be interesting to see how that shakes out you're listening to this week in the cle how long did ohio governor mike dewine know that his hand-picked utilities chief sam randazzo had received a $4.3 million payment from First Energy before Randazzo resigned in disgrace last year. Jane Cahoon, the money went to a company Randazzo controlled. Uh, it's been a big part of this case because he was the, the utilities chair and working on behalf of First Energy. But DeWine knew for it's some period of time before Randazzo quit. Well, things aren't entirely clear here. I mean, this is a story that took a couple of weird turns on, on Monday night. So in the afternoon, DeWine appeared at a news conference that was about anti-hazing initiatives. But of course, during the question and answers, he was peppered with questions from reporters ab about these new revelations uh, in the First Energy Deferred Prosecution Agreement, where they admitted that this 4.3 million dollar payment was was a bribe to Randazzo but a reporter asked him when he found out about that that payment and it, the payment was made to Randazzo right before DeWine picked him as chair of the PUCO now DeWine said he didn't know about it when he appointed Randazzo at the beginning of 2019 but he learned of it last October although he said he couldn't place the date so that raised some eyebrows right away because that would mean he knew about it well before Randazzo resigned. But after DeWine's remarks were reported by various media, his spokesman reached out later to clarify that, in fact, the governor's then chief of staff, Laurel Dawson, knew about the payment in late October because, guess what, Randazzo himself had told her. Uh, however, the governor's spokesman, uh, Dan Tierney, he said that Dawson didn't share that information with DeWine right away because at the time she didn't know anything was suspicious about the payment. He said the fact that First Energy would have paid a payment at the end of the contract with Randazzo was not, you know, in and of itself a, a unique item or an outliner. Outlier, I'm sorry. Uh, De DeWine, you know, while he was stressing that he didn't know about the payment when he hired Randazzo, said, My understanding was that Randazzo's relationship with First Energy was done. You know, what we were told by him was that he was coming out of retirement to be the PUCO chair. Um, he insisted that First Energy didn't push him or anyone in his administration to appoint Randazzo. He said he selected him because of his expertise in utility regulation. And and uh, the governor also said he he is not any of the officials uh, who are listed by pseudonym in this 49-page agreement. I we, we talked yesterday about this mysterious state official one and state official two. He, he said he's not aware of any member of his administration who who is identified in that document besides uh, Randazzo. And he also said he's going to donate more than $100,000 
in contributions he got from First Energy and, and executives there. All right, but here he is. He's the chief executive of the state. And at some point, whatever it is, I mean, it was fascinating how once people started reporting what he said, they went, yikes, running for re-election next year. Let's clarify. But <laughs> at some point, he finds out that his hand-picked head of the PUCO got that payment. He knew at that point that this thing had been forged in corruption. The The federal indictments had come out in July. Don't you think if if you were in his role, as soon as you heard about that, you would call Randazzo in and say, what gives? Why are you taking $4.3 million from First Energy right before I point you to the PUCO and, and maybe even fire him because of that? I mean, but by this time, First Energy was was bad news. I mean, the, 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 the details of this corruption, we'd been chewing on him big time for months. So I'm a little bit suspicious of all the changing of the story here. The minute he found out about this, he should have done something about it. Yes. He, he's not looking real good here. And and of course, he was immediately attacked about this, you know, by by Democrats who said, what do you mean? He knew about this. And this guy continued to serve, you know, when we knew about all this corruption. But, you know, I mean, I think he he would say they didn't realize that that payment was suspicious at the time. Wait, but, wait, you know, wait, 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 mm-hmm. a four point three million dollar payment from First Energy to the head of the Public Utilities Commission is mm-hmm. automatically, <laughs> by definition, suspicious. <laughs> well, I, I tend to agree, but uh, I'm telling you, they they regarded it. They thought maybe they knew he had done work for First Energy and they regarded it as some kind of severance payment or something. I don't know. Without asking, I'm just without without <laughs> taking the trouble <laughs> That's the thing, you know, you you could definitely make the argument like, why didn't you call him in, you know, call him on the carpet right away and question him about this? Yeah, I'm throwing the flag. You're listening to this week in the CLE. What can we expect from Cuyahoga County's? What can we expect from Cuyahoga's County Council when it comes to redistricting this year? Leila Tassi, all of our talk about redistricting is on the state level because we have the most gerrymandered districts we've ever seen. But the County Council also will have to adjust its districts to accommodate population shifts. What do we think will happen? Well, so with the release of the census data, which, you know, any day now, (laughs) we've been waiting forever for this, the county has to undergo this redistricting process. It'll be the second time since the new council form of government was established in 2010. Council just last week announced that it's searching for a consultant to help them with that effort. Once the census data is available, the county has 120 days to complete the process. So there will still be 11 districts. This wouldn't be like city council where population shifts would determine that they have to you know, lose a couple wards. Uh, so th- the population fluctuations could change the boundaries, but still 11 districts is what we're talking about. There will be an independent five-person council redistricting commission that will be assembled. They'll have final say on the map. Council or the county executive cannot change the map. It's it's up. It's in the hands of this commission. The council president will appoint that commission with input from his colleagues. And there are rules around who can serve on on this board. Uh, they can't have more than three people from the same political party. They can't hold political office or be an officer of a political party. And then there are guiding principles of redrawing the districts, which include, of course, they have to be compact, they have to be contiguous, they have to be split along as much as possible existing governmental boundaries. So cities and townships should remain intact if possible. And consideration has to be given to district boundaries that would improve opportunities for 
historically underrepresented groups to be elected to, to council. The last time this happened, Laura, correct me if I'm wrong because you covered this, but it happened shortly after council had just been mm-hmm. elected. Isn't that right? So the yeah, commission Layla, had to kind of, yeah, go ahead. Layla and I had this conversation. I was like, is this the first time this has ever happened? I was like, I covered yeah. the county in 2010 and I don't remember this. Well, that's how, you know, memorable it was that they had just elected these folks and they already were changing their districts. But I don't think it, it ends up being the huge kind of shift that you're going to see at the state level or even what we were talking about possibilities for city council. So because um, they already have some of the better government practices in place. I think it's fascinating yeah. that the, this commission has has ultimate authority, that they can't be overturned. I do think, though, in the last 10 years, you've seen a lot of east the east side of Cleveland lose residents. Downtown has grown, but the east side. Mm-hmm. So I, I would expect to see some sort of shifting there. No? Yeah, yeah probably. I mean, probably. The last time around, think about it, they used the latest estimates and then they had to redo it when the census was actually done. So they weren't looking at 10 year old numbers when they Mm. drew the original. They were only looking, you know, it only changed a little bit. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. Uh, Again, it's 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 not going to be dramatic like what we see on the state level. No, no. The real drama, though, is Cleveland City Council, where population loss would determine those council seats. And you could just make a bowl of popcorn and watch them all just <laughs> talk up to the council president. They're all begging not to be drawn out of their wards or pitted against their colleagues. It's like just great entertainment. Well, and they're all up for re-election start. at the same that's, time. And they're all right. scared and running for their lives because there's some very strong challengers out there. Right. Under under Marty Sweeney, when he was the president of council, it was like literally a gladiator match when Sweeney was, <laughs> was there. He was just a fight to the death. Oh, who said local politics is boring? It's great. <laughs> okay. Redistricting. We're all about it. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. All right, we'll have to talk about the uh, farmers in the rain tomorrow. Thank you. Actually, we also we didn't talk about the dark money, did we, Jane? Hmm. No, we'll, we did we'll not. We'll talk about not that yet. tomorrow. So Plenty to talk about. Hold that. Thank you, Jane. Thank you, Layla. Thank you, Laura. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast.